Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. My name is Rami Shami, your host for the podcast. A little background about our organization. We are located in Oakville, Ontario, but provide our services to the greater Toronto area of Ontario. We offer facilitated peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families following a death in their family. Our groups are ongoing and open-ended, which offer each family member an opportunity to participate in their own way. And we launched these podcasts to bring a greater awareness, not only to children's grief support, but especially the diversity within children's grief support. But before we begin, it's important that we acknowledge the land that we are speaking on today, that I am living on today as a settler. I want to acknowledge the land that I'm standing on today's traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Hundanishini, and the Wendat peoples, and as now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also want to acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Williams Treaty signed with the multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. And humbly, I feel it's not enough just to recite a land acknowledgement. It's an important aspect of reflecting on what has happened for us to meet on this land today, to speak on this land today, the genocide, the harm, the trauma, the history, the colonialism that has been experienced by Indigenous peoples who have been living on this land and honoring and caring for it that date back over 10,000 years. Today, our special guest, Nancy Housen, who is the Community Relations Director for the Down Syndrome Association of York Region, has been kind enough to join us to share her wisdom experience, knowledge, especially as it relates to accessibility or actually lack of uh, for grief support for children, youth and teens with disabilities and their families with a primary focus on individuals with Down syndrome. A little background on Nancy. I so appreciate you, Nancy, that you reached out to us, you reached out to me to, you know, to speak about this aspect of diversity that is quite marginalized, I feel, within many social sectors, let alone children's grief. So Nancy has been working with the special needs community for most of her professional life. Since 2012, she has been working in the Down syndrome community, first as a volunteer, and then she was hired on as a staff member with the Down Syndrome Association of Toronto. Her primary duty was to make sure that families who referred to support services that they might need. Her primary duty was to make sure that families who were referred to support services found what they might need. One of the major challenges has always been to find services that provide grief support. And since moving to work with the Down Syndrome Association of York Region, Nancy continues to work to advocate for more access to services that provide support in the grieving process, as well as other mental health services. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, Ramin. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. I'm excited, Nancy, because when we talk about diversity, Oftentimes, it's referred to ethnicity, whatever we define as culture, language, food, celebration, ceremony, religion, faith. But this is an important aspect of diversity, especially as it pertains to, to children's grief or the lack of support in, in regards to children's grief for individuals with disabilities. Can you tell us a little bit more about I don't even know where to begin, Nancy. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day basis? And then we'll expand on that in relations to finding supports and recognizing the gaps in accessibility to supports for people living with a disability. First of all, I could not agree with you more that there is a huge gap in accessibility 
for services in dealing with grief for individuals with Down syndrome. And what I do on a daily basis is families will call me in need of services. They've tried to find services on their own. So they're coming to us as a Down syndrome association because we should know. We should know where to go. We should have an idea. We should be able to provide that access. And fortunately, we can only go with what is offered out there. And what is offered out there are only a couple of organizations at present that offer services. And sadly, for bereavement services, it's between a two to three year wait list. Two to three wait lists. The year, two, two to three years wait list. You see, I stumbled on that because I couldn't believe it. So when when someone is grieving, you know, especially a, a child, youth, or teen, and who has Down syndrome, that's how long they have to wait to receive support. That is how long that they have to wait, and part of this stems from the fact that there's not enough education around people with Down syndrome and grief. There are still people out there who believe that people with Down syndrome do not grieve. They don't understand it. They don't process it. And some people would say, oh, well, it's 2022. How could they believe that? How could they not understand that? It's a lack of awareness and it's a lack of education. It's not really their fault. We need to start getting the word out, which is one reason why I'm grateful that you're having me here today, that people with Down syndrome do grieve, but they grieve in a different way. They grieve, their grief may not come as soon as the person passes away. It may take them a while to process it. It may take them a while to process, daddy's not coming home from work anymore. Mom is not there, grandpa or grandpa, they're not, they go to a Christmas celebration or a holiday celebration and grandma and grandpa who are usually there are not there. That's when it kicks in. And it can be as long as a year later before they start to process the grief. Without the proper support, this can lead to mental health issues, primarily depression. You know, I've heard, Nancy, thank you for that. I've heard from multiple organizations including those who provide children's grief support, is that, oh, we'll take them. You know, I've had this discussion with a number of professionals. We'll take them. We'll help them. Our doors are open. But, you know, in, in, my, in my limited knowledge, I don't think almost any, or especially social service organization that focuses on children's grief, is prepared to deal with or, or navigate the intricacies and sensitivities that are involved in supporting a grieving child, youth, or teen who has Down syndrome. What are your thoughts on that? I would agree. I would agree about that. I think you, first of all, there has to be an understanding of how a person with Down syndrome processes grief. They could go six months, a year, everything is seemingly fine. And then what starts to happen are behavioral issues. So it's not associated with the grief process. So people are tackling the, um, the behavioral issues. Also, a number of people with Down syndrome, as a form of comfort, will practice something called self-talk. Well, they will talk to an imaginary friend. They will talk to people in their room. They may talk to grandma or grandpa. It's comfort. But mistakenly, 
this has ended up as a diagnosis of a mental health issue. So again, it's having that awareness and having that knowledge of that it takes them a while to go, this, this person has passed on, they are not coming back. And actually, what does passing on mean? How it is explained to a person with Down syndrome that this person has passed away is critical. Using the words while they've gone to sleep is not something that we should use. It's all in the words. Because think about it. The person has gone to sleep. When you go to sleep, you wake up. So the question that this person, um, a person with Down syndrome, might be asking themselves, well, when are they going to wake up? Because people with Down syndrome think very, very visually and very literally. So unless a professional has these little bits and pieces of knowledge, you can't say, oh, we will take them. You have to gain the knowledge first. So if we have to gain the knowledge first, how do we gain the knowledge first? Nancy, I mean, that's a million dollar question, right? I probably should have saved that to the end of the podcast, but <laughs> we got into it right away. Beyond the pleasantries we got, and I love your passion for this field. How do we this, gain the knowledge first? You know, I, I'm going to be very, very honest with you. When the issue of grief really only started to manifest itself greatly during the pandemic, that's when we received a lot of calls about people going through the grief, people in our community going through the grieving process. I knew bits and pieces at that point. I suddenly had to become more of an expert. When I looked online and I started reading articles, I only found one that offered any good, solid advice. Then I found a program on grief, not just for people with special needs, but could be applied to people with Down syndrome online. So out of everything that's published online, there's only two things relative to the community. And to find these two articles, you have to do a lot of digging. So we are in the process now at York Region of taking those resources and we're going to be compiling our own and hopefully get that out to professionals as soon as possible and really start to do a lot more advocating and a lot more education in this regard. But it's nobody's fault that they're not an expert because there hasn't been anyone or anything to help. Even one of my teachers at, I'm going through a uh, program right now, um, and one of my teachers said during a grief counseling class, going, I don't know why you're here, because people with Down syndrome don't grieve. Wow. Sorry, I apologize. I just was caught off guard by that. In- incredible that there's that perception. Like, may I ask what you, how you responded? What did you say? I said, first of all, I have to have the battle of my inner voices because there's one inner voice wants to say it's 2022 how could you how could you even say that but my other inner voice goes we still have way more work to do and I said to her do you mind if I send you some articles tomorrow about Down syndrome and grief and I have to give her kudos she was very receptive I sent her the articles she actually emailed me three days later with an apology Ah, there you go. There you go. Like you said, you know, it's no one's 
quote unquote fault. It's it's a matter of education, awareness, and receptivity to that education. I think we have to, when we as advocates, especially for things like bereavement and other mental health services, we have to take out of our thinking, how could they not know? They may not know. They probably don't know. So develop the resources in your arsenal and say, hey, I'd like to send you some articles, send you some reports on this, and let's talk about it. Nine times out of 10, they're going to be receptive. But that's up to us and that's up to me as an advocate for the Down Syndrome Association to get the word out there. And that's what we are doing. Thank you for what you are doing, Nancy. And there's the hope that there is that receptivity. But may I ask you, how do you navigate organizations and and service providers that say, we'll take them? It's not so much, it's, it's almost an, uh, a lack of understanding and awareness that they don't have the capacity in learning and, and education to provide support in that regard. How do you navigate situations and individuals as such? This has now become a bit of a vetting process. So when I contact an organization that might specialize in bereavement or other mental health services, one of the things, the first question I ask is, have you worked with people in the special needs community? And more particular, have you worked with anyone with Down syndrome? And if the answer comes back, no, well, can we partner up? Can we work together? I have a few families who can't find services anywhere else. Is there something we can do together that we can start helping these families as well as other families like them? Again, it's nine times out of 10, we get people who are very receptive. It's the 10th time You're probably not going to get a person who's receptive, who doesn't want to invest the time, but also who may not have the time to invest. But I think the positive of COVID, it's brought a lot of people together. And it's brought a lot of organizations saying, okay, we have this expertise, but we're not quite there working with the Down syndrome community. Can you help us with resources? Can you help us with advice? Can you help us bring this program to the finish line? And it's the working together, the the infancy of coming to work together is really, really, really gratifying. Oh, I can I can feel that. How can I say that the gratification from you? If I can just shift this slightly, uh, Nancy, and thank you for what you've what you've shared with us. When we're talking about actual support, so at Lighthouse for Grieving Children, we have facilitated peer support, grief support. And would it bode, maybe I should even back this up and ask you, and not to blanket and generalize everyone who has Down syndrome, but how have you seen somebody with Down syndrome process grief? Can you expand? I know you touched on it. Can you expand on that a little bit more into what we could see and how they might process and process grief? They don't really, they don't really process it for a few months. It takes an event. It takes a regular visit for them to realize that the person who's passed away is not going to be there. Then they might start asking questions or there might be behavioral issues. 
And the behavioral issues of what I have seen in this and what I'm also, I want to clarify right here, may not be the norm for every situation because every, this is just on what I have observed, situations may vary greatly. So, and I just want to clarify that. So then they start asking questions, or they may start acting out. They may also start to, what I have observed, self-talk, which is a big comfort for them. They may start practicing self-talk and they may be starting and part of the self-talk is talking to the person who has passed away. Unfortunately, as I mentioned before, other professionals have seen the self-talk as a mental health issue and they've been mistakenly treated for that mental health issue. So the problem is, is the parents do their best to help them work through it, but without the extra support and the extra understanding of professionals, they sometimes, sometimes they may, they may be able to help their uh, child or teen work through it, and sometimes not. I can, I can appreciate it because we see with families, you know, with children who struggle to navigate, you know, a grief experience and a death-related loss. Nancy, how would you perceive or feel? someone with Down syndrome in that age demographic would act out as maybe differentiated from a child or a teen or youth who doesn't have Down syndrome and is experiencing a death-related loss? They may act out in the same way as a typical teen or child who has experienced loss. They, um, they'll lose their temper quite easily. They may have violent outbursts. They may start to throw things out of frustration. And they may also act out, um, this is something I should have mentioned before, because if they're nonverbal or semi-verbal and cannot verbalize what they're actually feeling, acting out is the way that they can do it. So there you have it right there. So if somebody, someone has Down syndrome and has experienced a death-related loss, they may be nonverbal. And how exactly. is that going to be? Yeah. And then how is that going to, you know, integrate into a, into a traditional model of grief support? Yeah. I think one of the things that has to be looked at is in a group setting, some of these guys may not be able to start off in a group setting. They may need one-to-one support. And what we have to look at is, uh, can they, can they cope with group, a group setting right away? Or is there going to be a need for one-to-one support? And having just one-to-one meetings with a counselor or a facilitator to start off with. Because it's taking a look at how they're processing things. Are they practicing self-talk? And how is the news, and this is one thing I should have touched on earlier, how was the news delivered? What do you mean by that, Nancy? Was the news even delivered? Were they allowed to go to the funeral? Were they allowed to be part of the celebration of life? Sometimes out of sheer protection, parents don't take them to the celebration of life or funeral or whatever celebration that they might, might choose to have. This can be detrimental because everybody needs to have the opportunity to say goodbye. I can appreciate that. I mean, that happens considerably with children and youth uh, in any case. And I can, I can suspect that when somebody has Down syndrome, they 
are uh, the, whoever whoever the caregiver may be may feel that they're shielding them from something that is traumatic or what have you but that you're saying is 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 also not appropriate i mean if they so wish they should be allowed or permitted to be at a funeral or celebration night is that a correct i think it's really imperative that they be allowed they may not be able to understand exactly what is going on. They may not be able to take everything in. But this gives some talking points for parents as the days and weeks go on and as they're processing the fact that their loved one has passed on. The other thing that I think it is imperative for children and youth to be a part of, especially if they have Down syndrome, is deciding how they're going to memorialize their loved one. Is there a favorite memento that they want to keep to remember their loved one? You know, having pictures of grandma or grandpa in their room. You know, we had one individual, you know, the mom really didn't want to put a picture of her mom who had passed on in her child's room. And I said, it's important. Well, the self-talk's coming in and he's going to talk to her too much. I said, that's great. That's his way of healing. And I think what kind of won her over is, I said, I'll be walking in my neighborhood and I'll look up to the heavens and I'll talk to my mom. It's a way of carrying on their memory. And that's especially important with someone with Down syndrome. Is that correct? It is very, very important. It's just because they have passed on, you don't have to forget about them. And uh, Nancy, when explaining a death-related loss, do you actually use, do you use the term passed on, passed away, died, death? What is the terminology that you find most suited for, for someone with Down syndrome who's experienced a death-related loss? Again, it really depends on the individual, but I think passed on, or passed on, passed away are two appropriate terms. I think in some cases, they need to understand the finality. And I think using the word they have died is appropriate as well, but it really, really depends on the individual. But again, I'll reiterate, just saying that they went to sleep is not a good idea. Yeah, and that's that's customary. Those euphemisms we don't use in children's grief, although they're still used in generalized public, but absolutely. And I guess, uh, not a guess, <laughs> uh, maybe an educated guess, but I assume with someone with Down syndrome, it's extra important, it's especially important in that regard. Again, I have to emphasize they're very visual and very literal thinkers. And and, and that res- sorry, Nancy, go ahead. And sleeping, sleeping denotes you're gonna wake up. So sleeping, we did have one family who did say that to um their child whose grandfather passed away, and then the child became afraid of going to sleep because the same thing would happen to him. So it is especially if I important. If I go to sleep, I'm not going to yeah. wake up. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to get too much into the neurobiology of it, of course, but what is actually happening with somebody with Down syndrome when they are very literal and very visual, especially as it relates to grief? That's something I don't have really the expertise as to say what's happening or what's not happening. This is just what I have observed. And I think from what I have observed, this is just, they're just trying to figure out what happened. 
Yeah, it makes sense, Nancy. Especially, you know, when, when I when we first uh, connected about doing this podcast, I did some deep research myself and actually came up with nothing in terms yeah. of grief and Down syndrome and actually most special needs. There's very, very little uh, that, that relates to that. Now, that being said, and you hinted to it or you spoke to it briefly, you know, at, at Lighthouse for Grieving Children, of course, we have facilitated peer support groups. How would that accommodate someone with Down syndrome? Or is it exactly, can, can they integrate into a group setting? Or really, should it be one-on-one, somebody who's trained, especially trained in special needs and, and how to support somebody with Down syndrome and their level of development in regards to what is grief and what is dying and what is death? They absolutely could integrate into a group setting, but I think this has to be done in steps. I think for what, and this, this again, I need to emphasize this goes on what I have observed, particularly during the pandemic. I think it has to start with one-to-one, the facilitator understanding where they are exactly developmentally, and then slowly introducing them into the group. That being said, I wonder, because there's there's a lot of misconceptions about Down syndrome, as you know, in, in adulthood, let alone children and youth and teen, and there can be bullying and there can be, you know, uh, misunderstanding and lack of awareness. How do you how do you foresee such a child, youth or teen being part of a group with other children who are grieving, who may not understand or are aware of how Down syndrome presents? I think the other children might surprise you because there is so much inclusion in mainstream schools. These kids have a tendency to be really protective of a person with Down syndrome and they end up being the mentors. They end up basically guiding them. And yep, there are, I'm not to say there's not bullying that happens in mainstream schools. It certainly does. Some of our community have experienced that firsthand. But I think when you start a group and if you're going to integrate someone with Down syndrome, it's setting up the rules, setting up the expectations. One of the things I've always been pleasantly surprised as a person with a learning disability and a person who was bullied back in my day, the level of acceptance of people with Down syndrome is just becoming greater and greater and greater. That's wonderful to hear, Nancy. And, you know, I, I should have reflected on that before I put it out there because I, I was thinking about my childhood and I experienced a lot of bullying as a, you know, in the son of an immigrant and refugee. And I had a unibrow and a rhyming name. I got bullied very badly. And I saw also children with special needs and with Down syndrome, you know, bullied and picked on and teased on. But kids are a little bit different today in terms of what they're exposed to and what they're learning is, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Because when you walk into um, a JK, JKSK class and the number of people, the number of children with special needs, not just the DS community, but other exceptionalities that are included is really amazing. You said a term that I haven't heard ever used to speak about special needs and developmental disabilities and what have you. And that was exceptionalities. Yes. That's another term that's used by some educators of different 
ex uh, different exceptionalities. But I like that term rather than special needs because I think every child is an exceptional child. Well, I, I certainly think my child is exceptional, so <laughs> I'd have to agree with you. So one topic that you, that came to mind, and, and thank you actually, Nancy, for the education and awareness of the term exceptionalities. I, I love it. You know, I mean, language is changing so quickly within social services and in society itself, right? But, um, and maybe this isn't necessarily the most appropriate term, but I, I like it because it's stark. What are some of the roadblocks, i.e. accessibility barriers to finding services for people with Down syndrome, especially as it relates to grief? Oh, wow. Where do I start? There are many, many, many roadblocks with getting not just bereavement, but any kind of service for somebody with Down syndrome. We have gotten calls throughout the years from parents and it starts actually with their own family doctor. If they're going through bereavement and it's leading to other behavioral issues, the family doctor, most family doctors, unfortunately don't have an understanding of how a person with Down syndrome processes not just bereavement, but really a lot of other issues. And parents will call me in frustration explain that their child or their teen has encountered a loss and they know that they need help, but the family doctor has no idea on where to send them. They don't know about organizations, bigger organizations like Story Place or Adventure Place. And even those places, their grief support uh, programs have a very lengthy wait list. So there, there it is. But it starts we, I think educating the family doctor that where the services are as little as they may be right now, but if the family doctor can't find the services, educating the family doctor on how to help the family navigate through until they can find them some services. But I think that that's where it, it needs to start, but we also need to have more education. so. Other organizations can not just say, oh, we'll take them, but know how to properly service them. I suspect that involves training and educating staff and volunteers on this scope of service. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the reasons why I went back to school a couple of years ago was so that I could become better educated and I could at least talk families through certain situations. I knew a lot, but I also realized I needed to know more. But as I spoke about earlier, I was pretty shocked and surprised to find that there really wasn't a lot of um, articles, education. Not a lot has been written. No, and I'm not, not even faulting the teachers for saying to me, why are you here because people with Down syndrome don't grieve? Again, there's nothing, there's not a lot written. So how would they know? I couldn't agree more, Nancy. You said you went to back to school. May I ask what you studied that brought a greater awareness and understanding? I've been doing my social service worker uh, diploma, and I'm also taking my um, crisis intervention and trauma support certificate. And this did bring a greater awareness. I had an awareness 
but particularly when the pandemic hit, I knew I needed to learn a lot more. Yeah, we always need something more to learn, you know, especially in this dynamic in this dynamic field. Given uh, an organization such as Lighthouse, and I know our director, uh, Candice Ray, she's well-versed in special needs. She's done a lot of education and training and, and what have you in her, in her scope of practice. But as an organization, I suspect that how, how could we become more accessible to people with uh, exceptionalities, such as Down syndrome, in providing grief support? I think it starts with having a conversation with your local Down syndrome association on how can you work together to provide grief support. And I think it's working through looking possibly at a pilot program, looking at what resources there are out there and tailoring them to the general community. It also starts, I think, if you're going to start a program like this, the parents are their child's own best expert and advocate. Is talking to the parent to say, do you think one-to-one would be best? Do you think he'd be, he or she would be okay in a group? What are their modes of communication? Some people with Down syndrome communicate verbally, but also they are, when they get into emotional situations, they might go back to uh, the sign language that they know. And I guess, Nancy, that speaks to a very individualized, tailored approach, right? Which we try as much to do at Lighthouse for Grieving Children, but I think it's it's even more imperative with um, exceptionalities and someone such as someone with Down syndrome. But I think using the parents really does work well. The parents are the caregivers. They're the ones, throughout my career working in the field with children with exceptionalities, I have always gone to the parent to say, okay, You know, he seemed to be frustrated today, and this is what happened. Have you encountered this at home? How can I help him or her work through it if this happens again? Nine times out of ten, the parent's advice was spot on. I used it. The kid would be looking at me going, oh, I think that's been used before, and that helped. And it would work. You sometimes have to play around with their advice. You have to work through certain things. but it can work. Another thing that really helps to tailor a group is sending out an agenda the week before. For any program that we do with the Down Syndrome Association, particularly when we had to move to online models, we sent out weekly agendas. And that way the parents could go through it with their kids, get everything that they needed, get the kids to help. And then the kids were prepared. They can't be prepared over everything to expect, but it does help. Thank you, Nancy. Yes, it's absolutely the hope that it would uh, it would help. And I appreciate how much even more important it is to involve the parents. I mean, we do involve the parents, but, you know, sometimes children are not as expressive and communicative to their parents. But I suspect now, as I'm here listening to you, that someone with Down syndrome, a child, youth, or, or teen with, uh, with Down syndrome, it's extremely important to relate to parents because they know them best. I can't emphasize it enough. Uh, There are professionals I have worked with who are unwilling to include the parent. They see the parent as coddling them, as babying them. Uh, That may be so. That may be so on first observations, but they are still their own child's best advocate, 
and best expert. And also, a child takes comfort in seeing a professional and their parent working together. When they know that you guys are both on their team, there, I believe that there is a comfort to that. Yeah, well said, Nancy. It's a, it's a united effort for sure. Thank you, Nancy. You know, something that I've heard, and it might have been in conversation with you because you left such an impression on me when we first talked in, in this regard, that sometimes parents, when they, when they first have a child and it's recognized as having Down syndrome, they grieve the loss of a child that they thought they would have. And I'm wondering how that experience of loss and grief impacts a death-related loss on such a child later in life? That is actually, it's a very good point. That's something I really hadn't thought of. But uh, yes, many parents do come to us in a state of grief. And it's not that they are, their child is physically there. And it's not that they're grieving the loss of a child, as you said. It's they're grieving the loss of what they thought they were going to have. And again, there's not really enough written about this. There's not enough assistance given to parents about this. And many parents spiral into postpartum over this issue as well. I think as they recover from this grieving process, what I have seen is for those parents who have gone through a really tremendous grieving process when uh, their child was first born, they tend to become extremely protective of their child with Down syndrome. How interesting, Nancy. Like They go from grieving the child that they thought they were going to have to being overprotective of that child. Yes. What, what, what happens? I mean, it's all, it's so individual. And, but what happens there? Why? Because they are so afraid to me. And again, this is a personal perception from what I have observed. They are so afraid of their child becoming hurt. They're so afraid of their child being picked on. They're so afraid of all the bad things that could happen to them. It is better to protect the child than throw them out in the world. We now know research has shown that when children with Down syndrome are included in their general community, be it their community school, community activities, they learn best from their typical peers. They learn really well and they thrive. We also now know as they are living longer, many people with Down syndrome are very employable. They're having great, they're doing great things. They're operating their own businesses. They're it's amazing what they were doing compared to when, when I was a kid in the 60s. Who would have thought this? Absolutely. Who would have thought that Absolutely. a person with Down syndrome could own and operate their own business? Or leading roles in movies and TVs. Exactly. Exactly. We, we have a few uh, actors in our community. And there's also uh, a, an award-winning photographer in the UK. His pictures are gorgeous. But for some parents, it is easier for them to cope, to keep them in what we term as bubble wrap. And that would include a death-related loss and funerals and celebrations right. of life and, and euphemisms. Exactly. So It is uh, easier to shield them 
than to deal with what could be potential fallout. Yeah, As you course. and I both know, we were born, we live, and we pass away. It is all a part of life. Whether we like, like it or not, dying is going to happen. But by shielding them in bubble wrap, or not just about a relative passing away or for anything, we also know that people with Down syndrome are very prone to early onset dementia as early as their 30s. If they are not kept active, if they are not kept engaged, it's not only the dementia that can happen, but there can be a range of other health issues. Yeah, of course, such as depression, mental health, and it just robs them of their individuality, their autonomy, their self-direction, and it, it really does disempower them. It really disempowers them greatly. I mean, a few years ago, we got calls from siblings who had 50-plus-year-old siblings still living at home with their 90-plus-year-old mother or father. Now, the 90-plus-year-old parent had basically said, they're going to be moving in with you once I pass away. But the other siblings were not willing to take this on. So we were fortunate at the time, this was pre-COVID, we were able to get agencies to get in and support the families. But one of the things one of the moms said to one of the professionals, I don't need you, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to be here. I'm going to protect him. It's all going to be good. She was not joking. She was serious. But the professional said to her, sometimes our best laid plans do not work out. So let's make the referrals and let's get things in place to help you. Fast forward into COVID, she could no longer manage her adult child at home. And they were able to move them into a really lovely group home. But they were lucky that all of that had been put in place before COVID. But there are a lot of families who wrap their kids in bubble wrap, do not want any professionals coming in. And this is when I get horrifying calls from a very well-meaning individual to let me know that there is a person with Down syndrome wandering around on the streets. So planning is not only planning for their life, but it's also planning for things that happen. And I think I, we, I ventured off a little bit, but it was my long way of saying, my long way around saying, we have to understand that death does happen. We have to understand that death, a person who is meaningful to your loved one who has Down syndrome, passing away, is it's going to have an impact. And and thank you for that, Nancy. Um, and speaking of that impact. I hope my question is appropriate and sensitive. Does a child, youth or teen with Down syndrome model, mimic, reflect how their parents process grief and express grief? They very well could. They could. They very well could. They could. People with Down syndrome are born mimics. That's what I was, you know, I didn't want to put it out there because it is a generalization and maybe even in my mind might have been, you know, um, a form of categorization, but I've heard that. And so I was wondering, leading down to that, if that actually is part of that maybe aspect of grieving. It can, it, it can very well be. It can very well be. I have been in um, contact with families. I've known a lot of these kids since they were a year and they're now turning 12 and 13 respectively. 
I find I have to be very careful with what I say because in the next phone conversation or Zoom call, they're going to say what I said right back to me. And they're going to mimic exactly how I said it. That's amazing. You know, one of my favorite phrases is, you make me cuckoo. I love you, but you make me cuckoo. They're now telling me that and they're saying it exactly that way. So that's imperative that when we model grief or grieving and, and mourning, that they will, because you said it's very, they're very literal and very visual, they will literally <laughs> model it and reflect it yep. and mirror it. They could very well be. Incredible. Now, Incredible. I, want to be, I want to add to that. They may not all do this, but there's a very good chance that they will. Because I just want to be careful that we don't overgeneralize. No, of course. And that's what I was um, trying to be mindful yeah. of. You know, I mean. But they can be born mimics. And I've just, I've noticed with some of the families that I'm in constant contact, particularly during the pandemic, as I said, anything I say, next conversation, it's like talking to a mirror. Yeah. Thank you for that insight, uh, Nancy. I, I so appreciate it because, again, it comes down to the awareness and knowledge that this could be a part of, you know, how they process the grief or how they engage it, you know, and if we're not aware of that, we will miss it. We won't recognize it. Well, this is just, this is just it. It's really important. And this is again, why I'm so grateful for being your guest today, because our community doesn't have a lot of opportunity to get out there and raise awareness. And we are very, very grateful for any opportunity that we do get. So that all being said, Nancy, and how uh, not to, to create, not to uh, uh, blue sky too high, how can we change this? How do you think we can change this in terms of navigating grief support for people with exceptionality such as Down syndrome? Part of it definitely is education and awareness. I expect a big part of it is research and maybe another big part of it is funding. Anything else you can add to that from your perspective? Funding is a very big part of it. But I think it's time for us as Down Syndrome Associations to start to stop thinking within the box and start thinking outside of the box and to approach organizations like yours to say, I know that you've not worked with people with Down Syndrome, but how can we make a start and do something together? Yeah, well said, Nancy. We'd be I'd love to carry on the conversation with you and, and some of our, our leadership and staff and volunteers in, in that regard. Bringing this to a close, is there anything you can leave with us or would like to leave with us as a reflection moving forward? The theme for this year is inclusion means. And it's basically it's asking what does inclusion mean to you? And I have to say inclusion means after everything that we went through, especially in the pandemic, and inclusion means creating more accessible services to people with Down syndrome. And this includes top of my list, bereavement services. Well, you're speaking my language, Nancy, because our part of our mission vision and even in culture of Lighthouse for Grieving Children is that no child will grieve alone or no child should grieve alone. And that includes children, youth, and teen with Down syndrome. So I very much appreciate that. And thank you so much for your time today, Nancy. It, you've been absolutely uh, a treasure and an invaluable resource. And I'm glad we've connected and we can definitely 
you know, uh, foster this relationship and learn so much more from you. I would welcome that greatly. And thank you once again for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And on behalf of Bob, the Down syndrome of York Region, we appreciate your time. Thank you, Nancy. If you'd like more information about the Down Syndrome Association of York Region, visit www.dsayr.ca. If you'd like more information about Lighthouse for Grieving Children, please check us out on our social media. As with Down Syndrome Association, they have social media. It looks like they have Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you very much, everyone. I know we're at the tail end, hopefully the tail end of a pandemic, but please stay safe out there and take good care. Mm